Chapter Seventeen of Fenton's Quest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lewis. Fenton's Quest by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Seventeen. Miss Carley's Admirers There were times in which Marian Holbrook's life would have been utterly lonely but for the companionship of Ellen Carley. This warm-hearted, outspoken country girl had taken a fancy to Mr. Holbrook's beautiful wife from the hour of her arrival at the Grange one cheerless March evening and had attached herself to marian from that moment with unalterable affection and fidelity the girl's own life at the grange had been lonely enough except during the brief summer months when the roomy old house was now and then enlivened a little by the advent of a lodger some stray angler in search of a secluded trout stream or an invalid who wanted quiet and fresh air but in none of these strangers had Ellen ever taken much interest. They had come and gone and made very little impression upon her mind. Though she had helped to make their sojourn pleasant in her own brisk, cheery way, she was twenty-one years of age, very bright-looking, if not absolutely pretty, with dark expressive eyes, a rosy brunette complexion, and very white teeth. The nose belonged to the inferior order of pug or snub. The forehead was low and broad, with dark brown hair rippling over it, hair which seemed always wanting to escape from its neat arrangement into a multitude of mutinous curls. She was altogether a young person whom the admirers of the soubrette style of beauty might have found very charming. And, secluded as her life at the Grange had been, she had already more than one admirer. She used to relate her love affairs to Marian Holbrook in the quiet summer evenings, as the two sat under an old cedar in the meadow nearest the house, a meadow which had been a lawn in the days when the grange was in the occupation of great folks, and was divided from a broad terrace walk at the back of the house by a dry grass-brown moat, with steep sloping banks upon which there was a wealth of primroses and violets in the early spring. Ellen Carley told Mrs. Holbrook of her admirers, and received sage advice from that experienced young matron, who by and by confessed to her humble companion the era of her own girlhood, and how she had jilted the most devoted and generous lover that ever a woman could boast of. For some months— for the bright honeymoon period of her wedded life, Marian had been completely happy in that out-of-the-world region. It is not to be supposed that she had done so great a wrong to Gilbert Fenton, except under the influence of a great love, or the dominion of a nature powerful enough to subjugate her own. Both of these influences had been at work. Too late she had discovered that she had never really loved Gilbert Fenton, that the calm, grateful liking, which she had told herself must needs be the sole version of the great passion whereof her nature was capable, 
had been only the tamest most ordinary kind of friendship after all and that in the depths of her soul there was a capacity for an utterly different attachment a love which was founded on neither respect nor gratitude but which sprang into life in a moment fatal and all-absorbing from its birth heaven knows she had struggled bravely against this luckless passion had resisted long and steadily the arduous pursuit the passionate half-despairing pleading of her lover who would not be driven away and who invented all kinds of expedients for seeing her however difficult the business might be or however resolutely she might endeavor to avoid him it was only after her uncle's death when her mind was weakened by excessive grief that her strong determination to remain faithful to her absent betrothed had at last given way before the force of those tender passionate prayers and she had consented to the hasty secret marriage which her lover had proposed her consent once given not a moment had been lost the business had been hurried on with the utmost eagerness by the impetuous lover who would give her as little opportunity as possible of changing her mind and who had obtained complete mastery of her will from the moment in which she promised to be his wife she loved him with all the unselfish devotion of which her nature was capable and no thought of the years to come or of what her future life might be with this man of whose character and circumstances she knew so very little ever troubled her having sacrificed her fidelity to gilbert fenton she held all other sacrifices light as air never considering them at all in fact when did a generous romantic girl of nineteen ever stop to calculate the chances of the future or fear to encounter poverty and trouble with the man she loved to marion this man was henceforth all the world it was not that he was handsomer or better or in any obvious way superior to gilbert fenton it was only that he was just the one man able to win her heart that mysterious attraction which reason can never reduce to rule which knows no law of precedence or experience reigned here in full force it is just possible that the desperate circumstances of the attachment the passionate pursuit of the lover not to be checked by any obstacle may have had an influence upon the girl's mind there was a romance in such love as this that had not existed in mr fenton's straightforward wooing and marian was too young to be quite proof against the subtle charm of a secret romantic despairing passion for some time she was very happy and the remote farmhouse with its old-fashioned gardens and fair stretch of meadowland beyond them where all shade and beauty had not yet been sacrificed to the interest of agriculture seemed to her in those halcyon days a kind of earthly paradise she endured her husband's occasional absences from this rural home with perfect patience these absences were rare and brief at first but afterwards grew longer and more frequent nor did she ever sigh for any brighter or gayer life than this which they led together at the grange in him were the beginning and end of her hopes and dreams 
and so long as he was pleased and contented, she was completely happy. It was only when a change came in him, very slight at first, but still obvious to his wife's tender, watchful eyes, that her own happiness was clouded. That change told her that whatever he might be to her, she was no longer all the world to him. He loved her still, no doubt, but the bright holiday time of his love was over, and his wife's presence had no longer the power to charm away every dreary thought. He was a man in whom disposition there was a lurking vein of melancholy, a kind of chronic discontent very common to men of whom it has been said that they might do great things in the world and who have succeeded in doing nothing. It is not to be supposed that Mr. Holbrook intended to keep his wife shut away from the world in a lonely farmhouse all her life. The place suited him very well for the present, the apartments at the Grange, and the services of Mr. Carley and his dependents had been put at his disposal by the owner of the estate, together with all farm and garden produce. Existence here, therefore, cost him very little. His chief expenses were in gifts to the bailiff and his underlings, which he bestowed with a liberal hand. His plans for the future were as yet altogether vague and unsettled. He had thoughts of immigration, of beginning life afresh in a new country, anything to escape from the perplexities that surrounded him here, and he had his reasons for keeping his wife secluded. Nor did his conscience disturb him much, he was a man who had his conscience in very good training, as to the unfairness of this proceeding. Marion was happy, he told himself, and when time came for some change in the manner of her existence, he doubted if the change would be for the better. So the days and weeks and months had passed away, bringing little variety with them, and none of what the world calls pleasure. Marion read and worked and rambled in the country lanes and meadows with Ellen Carley, and visited the poor people now and then, as she had been in the habit of doing at Lidford. She had not very much to give them, but gave all she could, and she had a gentle, sympathetic manner which made her welcome amongst them. Most of all were there were children, for whom she always had a special attraction. The little ones clung to her and trusted her, looking up at her lovely face with spontaneous affection. William Carley, the bailiff, was a big, broad-shouldered man with a heavy, forbidding countenance and a taciturn habit by no means calculated to secure him a large circle of friends. His daughter and only child was afraid of him. His wife had been afraid of him in her time and had faded slowly out of a life that had been very joyless, unawares, hiding her illness from him to the last as if it had been a sort of offense against him to be ill. It was only when she was dying that the bailiff knew he was going to lose her, and it must be confessed that he took the loss very calmly. Whatever natural grief he may have felt was carefully locked in his own breast. His underlings, the farm laborers, found him a little more grumpy than usual and his daughter scarcely dared open her lips to him for a month after the funeral. 
but from that time forward miss carley who was rather a spirited damsel took a very different tone with her father she was not to be crushed and subdued into a mere submissive shadow as her mother had been she had a way of speaking her mind on all occasions which was by no means agreeable to the bailiff if he drank too much overnight she took care to tell him of it early next morning if he went about slovenly and unshaven her sharp tongue took notice of the fact yet with all this she waited upon him and provided for his comfort in a most dutiful manner she saved his money by her dexterous management of the household and was in all practical manners a very treasure among daughters william carey liked comfort and liked money still better and he was quite aware that his daughter was valuable to him though he was careful not to commit himself by any expression of that opinion he knew her value so well that he was jealously adverse to the idea of her marrying and leaving him alone at the grange when young frank randall the lawyer's son took to calling at the old house very often upon summer evenings and by various signs and tokens showed himself smitten with ellen carley the bailiff treated the young man so rudely that he was fain to cease from coming altogether and to content himself with an occasional chance meeting in the lane when ellen had business at crosber and walked there alone after tea he would not have been a particularly good match for any one being only an articled clerk to his father whose business in the little market town of malsham was no means extensive and william carley spoke of him scornfully as a pauper he was a tall good-looking young fellow however with a candid pleasant face and an agreeable manner so ellen was not a little angry with her father for his rudeness still more angry with him for his encouragement of her other admirer a man called stephen whitelaw who lived about a mile from the grange and farmed his own land an estate of some extent for that part of the country. "'If you must marry,' said the bailiff, "'and it's what girls like you seem to be always thinking about, "'you can't do better than take up with Steph Whitelaw. "'He's a warm man, now, "'and a wife of his will never want a meal of victuals "'or a good gown to her back.' you better not waste your smiles and your civil words on a beggar like young randall who won't have a house to take you to for these ten years to come not then perhaps for there's not much to be made by law in malsham nowadays and when his father dies supposing he's accommodating enough to die in a reasonable time which it's ten to one he won't be the young man will have his mother and sisters to keep upon the business very likely. And there'd be a nice lookout for you. Now, if you marry my old friend Steph, he can make you a lady. This was a very long speech for Mr. Carley. It was grumbled out in short spasmodic sentences between the slow whiffs of his pipe as he sat by the fire in a little parlor off the hall with his indefatigable daughter at work at a table near him. 
Stephen Whitewall had need be a gentleman before he could make me a lady, Nellie answered, laughing. I don't think fine clothes can make gentlefolks, no, nor farming one's own land either, though that sounds well enough. I'm not in any hurry to leave you, father, and I'm not one of those girls who's always thinking of getting married. But come what may, depend on it, I shall never marry Mr. Whitelaw. Why not, pray? the bailiff asked savagely. Nellie shook out the shirt she had been repairing for her father, and then began to fold it, shaking her head resolutely at the same time. "'Because I detest him,' she said. "'A mean, close, discontented creature, who can see no pleasure in life except money-making. I hate the very sight of his parched, pinched face, father, and the sound of his hard, shrill voice. If I had to choose between the workhouse and marrying Stephen Whitelaw, I'd choose the workhouse, yes, and scrub and wash and drudge, and toil there all my days, rather than be mistress at Wycombe Farm. "'Well, upon my word,' exclaimed the father, taking the pipe from his mouth and staring aghast at his daughter in a stupor of indignant surprise. "'You're a pretty article. You're a nice piece of goods for a man to bring up and waste his substance upon.' A piece of goods that will turn round upon one and refuse a man who farms his own land? Mine, he hasn't asked you yet, my lady, and never may, for aught I know. I hope he never will, father, Nellie answered quietly, unsubdued by this outburst of the bailiffs. If he does, and you don't snap at such a chance, you need never look for a sixpence from me. "'And you best make yourself scarce pretty soon in the bargain. "'I'll have no such trumpery round my house.' "'Very well, father. "'I dare say I can get my living somewhere else, "'without working much harder than I do here.' "'This open opposition on the girl's part "'made William Carey only the more obstinately bent upon that marriage, "'which seemed to him such a brilliant alliance.' which opened up to him the prospect of a comfortable home for his old age, where he might repose after his labors and live upon the fat of the land without toil or care. He had a considerable contempt for the owner of Wincombe Farm, whom he thought a poor creature both as a man and a farmer, and he fancied that if his daughter married Stephen Whitelaw, he might become the actual master of that profitable estate. He could twist such a fellow as Stephen round his fingers, he told himself, when invested with the authority of a father-in-law. Mr. Whitelaw was a pale-faced little man of about five-and-forty years of age, a man who had remained a bachelor to the surprise of his neighbors, who fancied, perhaps, that the owner of a good house and a comfortable income was in a manner bound by his obligation to society to take to himself a partner with whom to share these advantages. He had remained unmarried, giving no damsel ground for complaints by any delusive attentions, and was supposed to have saved a good deal of money, and to be about the richest man in these parts, with the exception of the landed gentry. He was by no means an attractive person, in this, the prime of his manhood, he had a narrow, mean-looking face, with sharp features, and a pale, sickly complexion. 
which looked as if he had spent his life in some close london office rather than in the free sweet air of his native fields his hair was of a reddish tint very sleek and straight and always combed with extreme precision upon each side of his narrow forehead and he had scanty whiskers of the same unpopular hue which he was in the habit of smoothing with a meditative air upon his sallow cheeks with the knobby fingers of his bony hand he was of a rather nervous temperament inclined to silence like his big burly friend william carley and had a depreciating doubtful way of expressing his opinion at all times in spite of this humility of manner however he cherished a secret pride in his superior wealth and was apt to remind his associates upon occasion that he could buy up any one of them without feeling the investment after having attained the discreet age of forty-five without being a victim to the tender passion mr whitelaw might reasonably have supposed himself exempt from the weakness so common to mankind but such self-gratulation had he indulged in it would have been premature for after having been a visitor at the grange and boon companion of the bailiffs for some ten years it slowly dawned upon him that ellen carley was a very pretty girl and that he would have her for his wife and no other her brisk off-hand manner had a kind of charm for his slow apathetic nature her rosy brunette face with its bright black eyes and flashing teeth seemed to him the perfection of beauty but he was not an impetuous lover he took his time about the business coming two or three times a week to smoke his pipe with william carley and paying nelly some awkward blundering compliment now and then in his deliberate hesitating way he had supreme confidence in his own position and his money and was troubled by no doubt as to the ultimate success of his suit it was true that nelly treated him in by no means an encouraging manner was indeed positively uncivil to him at times but this he supposed to be mere feminine coquetry and it enhanced the attraction of the girl he designed to make his wife as to her refusing him when the time came for his proposal he could not for a moment imagine such a thing possible it was not in the nature of any woman to refuse to be mistress of wincombe and to drive her own whitechapel cart a comfortable hooded vehicle of the wagonette species which was popular in those parts so stephen whitelaw took his time contented to behold the object of his affection two or three evenings a week and to gaze admiringly upon her beauty as he smoked his pipe in the snug little oak wainscoted parlor at the grange while his passions grew day by day until it did really become a very absorbing feeling second only to his love of money and wincombe farm these dull sluggish natures are capable of deeper passions than the world gives them credit for and are as slow to abandon an idea as they are to entertain it it was ellen carley's delight to tell marian of her troubles and to protest to this kind confidant again and again that no persuasion or threat of her father's should ever induce her to marry stephen whitelaw which resolution mrs holbrook fully approved there was a little gate opening from a broad green lane into one of the fields at the back of the grange 
and here sometimes of a summer evening they used to find frank randall who had ridden his father's white pony all the way from Malsham for the sake of smoking his evening cigar on that particular spot they used to find him seated there smoking lazily while the pony cropped the grass in the lane close at hand he was always eager to do any little service for mrs holbrook to bring her books or anything else she wanted from Malsham, anything that might make an excuse for his coming again by appointment and with the certainty of seeing Alan Carley. It was only natural that Marian should be inclined to protect this simple love affair, which offered her favorite a way of escape from the odious marriage that her father pressed upon her. The girl might have to endure poverty as Frank Randall's wife, but that seemed a small thing in the eyes of Marian, compared with the horror of marrying that pale-faced, mean-looking little man whom she had seen once or twice sitting by the fire in the oak parlor with his small, light gray eyes fixed in a dull stare upon the bailiff's daughter. End of chapter 17